pray together. Lord God, you have created us as human beings with a need to be loved and to give love also. And this morning, Lord, as we talk about ultimate love, you yourself, we pray your spirit's attendance that you would help us as we look at a small portion of your word. And Father, that you would be glorified and that we would be greatly encouraged by your word as we head into tonight and the celebration of the birth of the Savior tomorrow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'm looking for a remote. So I'm on a Christmas search already. <laughs> there it is. Okay. Thank you, Francis. Thank you. Well, friends, what did the Apostle John mean exactly when he said in 1 John chapter 4, God is love? Did he mean that God loves everything and anything indiscriminately, no exceptions, and that we should simply do the same? Or did John mean something quite different from that? And some of you have already answered the question. God is love. What does this mean? Well, I think maybe a good place to start would be to consider the word is in God is love. God is love. In other words, the is-ness of God, the essence of God is love. Listen, as Christians, we know God as Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity, and we know that Father, Son, and Spirit have eternally, listen, eternally shared between them a perfect, unbroken, mutual, everlasting love. A love that had no beginning, and a love that will have no end. This unbreakable love that is shared between Father, Son, and Spirit was in effect, listen, it was in effect, trillions of centuries before the earth and the solar system were ever created. God existing forever as Father, Son, and Spirit is love. He is love, intrinsic to himself. So then we might put it like this, that, that the phrase God is love is less about what God does and more about who God is, his essence. He is love. It's sort of like if we said the sun, S-U-N, is fiery, bright, and hot. The isness, the, the very essence of the sun is fiery brightness and heat. But now as it happens with the sun, that its bright light and its great heat emanate outward from its essence, lighting up our world, giving us heat, so it is with God who is love. The love we've just finished describing that is a unique love, a holy love, 
intrinsic to God, unlike ours, it emanates out from him and it has manifested in our world and for our world. This morning we're looking at another passage that was written by the Apostle John, John chapter three, verses 16 through 18. The Christmas season is a season that is all about giving. We carefully select gifts to give to our loved ones. And I thought it might be appropriate this morning to turn our eyes in this hour toward the indescribable gift that God has given, yes, out of his great love to undeserving people like us who have rebelled against him. And really this morning, the focus of the sermon is toward anyone here, anyone in the sound of my voice who has not yet entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. God is love. How does God's holy love emanate outward to rascals like us? John 3.16, you know it well, many of you. For God, read it with me, for God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now let's spend some time here. We're gonna start with the phrase, God so loved the world. Now when we see that word, world, in John's gospel, it's not as much a reference to the natural world with its trees and its rivers and its mountains. Rather, for John the Apostle, world means humanity, and more specifically, it means humanity in opposition to God. Humanity in rebellion against God. God so loved that world. He so loved the world of sinful, lost people like us who in no way, shape, or form deserved God's love. Freely, freely love emanated out from God who is love to a sin-sick world that did not love him in return. And what specific shape did God's love take? He so loved the world. That is the manner in which God's love manifested itself to a rebellious world. The the shape that his love took was this. He gave, he gave, isn't Christmas all about giving? He gave his very, very, best to an undeserving world. He gave his only son. Now I want you to think about this with me. The son of God, we said at the beginning, the son of God had existed eternally from before the foundation of the world in that pure, that holy love relationship with Father and Spirit. But as Paul puts it in Galatians 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, 
when the fullness of time had come, that God determined, God sent forth his son. He sent his son into this world, yes? The infant Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. God in his blazing, eternal love gave his eternal son to the world now born in human flesh. Wonder of wonders, the incarnation. But the purpose of his coming, listen, the purpose of his coming in Bethlehem as a baby was to grow into a man who would be crucified on a cross as the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The purpose of the manger in Bethlehem was the cross of Calvary where Jesus would die as the sub, sinless, sinless substitute for wicked people who deserved the death that he took on their behalf. So that in sheer grace, in sheer grace, they might be forgiven the sins that they commit against the holy God. Jesus on the cross, to quote Hebrews 9, verse 26, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do what? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The purpose of God giving Jesus to the world that day in Bethlehem was to give Jesus for the world at a later date on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever, what's the word there? Believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, my friend, can you see in this phrase from Holy Scripture the awful problem that faces every single person who is born into this world? The problem each of us face, no matter what our age is, no matter what our gender is, no matter what our skin color is, the, the, the problem that each and every one of us face is perishing. And the word perish here is translated from the same Greek word that is used over in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, where Jesus discusses the prospect of both the soul and body being destroyed or perishing, same word in Greek, at, in hell. And so here in John 3.16, the word perish has to do with eternal destruction. Each of us is born into a poisoned condition called sin. And we all commit sins, plural, against the holy God who created us and who owns us, he determines that unless we are rescued, we must perish eternally because of our sin against him. 
But again, listen, in his great mercy, we need to understand, in his great mercy and love and grace, he has orchestrated our rescue from his own wrath. He's given us his son incarnate, his son crucified to forgive us our sins, that whoever believes in him, whoever takes this one by faith, this one who was crucified to forgive us our sins should not perish, should not perish, but have eternal life. The person who trusts Jesus as Savior and Lord has eternal life, has abundant life, the finest quality of life that will last for how long? Forever and ever. I want you to listen once again because this is so important to the most ultimate Christmas gift that has ever been given or ever will be given at any time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so my question to you, probably the most serious question you can be asked at Christmas time or any other time is, do you believe in him? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Is your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? My friend, it doesn't matter who you are, or what you've done, or what you haven't done. As Romans 10, 9 says, and it says so clearly, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the chains of your sin, saved from God's wrath, saved from perishing eternally, saved to eternal life. But let's go onward now to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now notice at the end of that verse that he gives us the motivation, or we could say he gives us the reason why the Father sent his eternal Son from heaven to earth to be born in human flesh in a manger. The reason why the Father sent his Son was so that the world might be saved through him. The Father sent his Son on a divine rescue mission. The Father sent his willing Son, Jesus Christ, that Jesus would be crucified and then raised to life on the third day, rescuing people from sin, from death, from the devil. Rescuing us from the wrath of God, listen, that was righteously coming upon us for our rebellion against the holy God who made us. And notice the start of the verse, where John tells us that the Son was not sent into the world to 
condemn the world. Because why? Well, the truth is that the world was already condemned. It was already lost when Jesus arrived in the manger. The mission of Jesus, as this verse says so clearly, was to save a lost and divinely condemned world. And in the gospel accounts, we see that Jesus himself, he was very clear on exactly what his mission was. Like in Luke 19.10, when he said concerning himself, the son of man, he's talking about himself, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. He was very clear on why he came in the flesh to this earth. It was to seek and to save lost people. And for the first 20 years of my life, I was definitely one of those spiritually lost people until Jesus commandeered me in a gymnasium in Woodbridge, Ontario, as I sat there under the sound of gospel preaching. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You know, I think at Christmas time we can sentimentalize the nativity scene perhaps too much. We can get all kind of wistful, dreamy-eyed as we think about the star that guided the wise men and no room at the inn. The cattle gathered around the manger with Mary and Joseph. The beauty of the story, and it is beautiful, the intrigue that surrounds the story, I think, makes it easy for us to wander from the actual focus, which is the little baby in the manger come as God in the flesh to rescue spiritually lost people the world over for all generations. Now, if you're exchanging gifts this year, I don't know when you plan to do the opening. Uh, some will do it tonight. After our evening service, which begins at 6.30, please be on time. A little spiritual commercial there. <laughs> so some will do it tonight. Others will do their gift opening tomorrow morning. But I want you to imagine this scenario. You have been enemies with a certain person for as long as you can remember. You really don't like this person. You've ignored this person for years and years in the interest of living your life free from any relationship with this person because you don't like this person. But then on Christmas morning, this person shows up at your door with a smile and graciously hands you a very expensive, wonderful, once-in-a-lifetime gift. What do you do? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, the question is, do you receive the gift? Well, listen, friends, before the risen Christ comes and enters our lives, each and every one of us is an enemy against God. Romans 5.10. We don't like him. 
We prefer the darkness to the light and we run from God and we ignore him in the interest of living what we think is our free life. A serious relationship, an intentional relationship with God, we think, is just too restrictive for us. But then God comes along on Christmas morning into this world with his ultra-expensive, wonderful, once-in-a-lifetime gift, the gift of his son Jesus, given to us to save us from ourselves, to save us from death, to save us from the devil. What do we do? Do we receive this gracious gift from the very one that we had spurned? Verse 18, whoever believes in him. That's a phrase that describes a person stretching out her empty spiritual hands to receive this Jesus. To take the gift that God has given. Whoever believes in him, whoever exercises faith in this Jesus who was born, crucified, and risen from the dead, whoever believes in him is not condemned, listen, but whoever does not believe, whoever slams the door on God as he graciously, lovingly, undeservedly holds out the precious gift of his son, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he or she has not believed in the name of the only son of God. My friend, I want you to listen very carefully. On the authority of the word of God, on the authority of the Bible, I say to you that whoever you are, and it doesn't matter who you are, you are in need of what God has given. You are in need of the Savior, the only Son of God, the work that he has carried out on your behalf. So will you believe in him? Will you trust Jesus and take him by faith? Will you humbly open your undeserving, empty spiritual hands and receive God's riches? Will you pass over this very day from condemnation before God to salvation in him? Again, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I want you to understand from verse 18 that there are only two options open to you. Only two. Belief in Jesus or unbelief. You see, there is no neutral gear. No neutral option. Verse 18, along with the rest of the Bible, does not leave us the option of saying something like, well, I'm not a believer in Jesus, but neither am I an unbeliever. I'm somewhere in the middle. No. There is no middle ground. It's either believe or don't believe. It's either you are saved by God's Son, 
or you are condemned by God. From God's perspective, you see, from God's perspective, which is ultimately the only perspective that really matters, there is no third option that is open to you. Years ago, when we would travel to the Okanagan Valley in BC to visit with April's family, I used to sometimes take, you wouldn't tell now because of my girth, but I used to take my mountain bike to a place called Rattlesnake Point. And as you come into the area, there are huge signs that are posted everywhere about the dangers of rattlesnakes and the steps that you need to take if you are bitten by one. And really, I remember riding through, it's kind of an arid area there, and I was riding, I'd pedal and then I'd lift my legs up and I'd let the bike sort of coast because I wanted to get my legs away from possible snakes. The main thing you need to know if a snake bites you is that you need to get to a hospital as soon as possible to get the medicine you need to combat the venom. If a poisonous snake bites you and you will die in hours without treatment, what will you do? When the doctor holds out the medicine before you, says here's what you need to take, will you say to the doctor, well thanks doc, but..." You know, I'm on the fence about the medicine. And then you walk away. Well, friends, the Bible teaches us the hard reality, which is that each and every one of us, again, doesn't matter who we are, each and every one of us is born into this world spiritually poisoned. It's eternally terminal for all of us. We need an antidote. We need life-saving medicine. We need rescue. And God in his great love and his amazing grace and his rich mercy has given the antidote. <laughs> yes, he has given the medicine, the rescue. His name is Jesus. Jesus, who was crucified on Friday in our place and raised on Sunday for our justification before God. Will you receive the antidote named Jesus this day? And you can do it like this as we bow our heads in prayer. Pray along with me. God in heaven, I come to you confessing that although I don't deserve it in any way, shape, or form, I need the free gift that you have graciously given, your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I understand that it's not this prayer I'm praying that will rescue me. I understand what rescues me is Christ crucified the Lamb of God slain, whom you have provided as my great rescue. I understand that the ground of my salvation is Christ and Christ's work. And I respond to you now by opening my empty hands to you to receive the gift of your crucified and risen Son. Lord, in your great love, in your mercy, forgive me my sin against you. Forgive me for seeking cisterns that hold dirty water 
instead of seeking you who is the pure fountain. Forgive me by the blood of Jesus shed for me and make me alive in him. And I ask you, O God, to walk closely with me all the remaining days of my life, showing me your glory, showing me my place in your church and in this world. For Christ's sake, amen. I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. Our Savior is born. Amen. Please stand for our benediction. Now to you who have died, been buried, and have been raised with Christ, and whose life has been hidden in Christ, and who will be revealed with him in glory, go, knowing that it is in faith that you stand firm by his life that is at work within you. Amen. Merry Christmas.